You are listening to episode number 29 of the Secondary Science Simplified Podcast. Happy summer break! Hopefully at this point, all of my friends from up north are finally out of school and enjoying some time off. Right before I know that some of you who have been out since May are actually starting to gear up to head back. So regardless of where you are in your time off this summer, I want to use this episode to kick off a new series on the podcast all about shifting your pedagogy to be more student-centered this upcoming school year. So what do I mean by that? Pedagogy is honestly just a fancy educational term for teaching practice. So this series will be all about how to move your methods of teaching to be more centered on your students and less centered on you. In future episodes in this series, we will cover the why behind making this shift and all the specifics behind how to do it. But today, I want to start off by really articulating exactly what student-centered pedagogy is and what it isn't, and by asking you a few questions to reflect on your own practice and where you are in terms of measuring how student-centered your teaching practice currently is. Are you ready for it? If so, let's jump in. This is Secondary Science Simplified, a podcast for secondary science teachers who want to engage their students and simplify their lives. I'm Rebecca Joyner from It's Not Rocket Science. As a high school science teacher turned curriculum writer, I'm passionate about helping other science teachers love their jobs, serve their students, and do it all in only 40 hours a week. Are you ready to rock the time you spend in your classroom and actually have a life outside of it? You're in the right place, teacher friend. Let's get to today's episode. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, this month is all about looking at your pedagogy or how you approach teaching the students who are assigned to be in your classes. Specifically, we're going to talk about making your pedagogy or your teaching practice more student-centered. Back in January, which seems like an eternity ago, I interviewed my very first podcast guest, which was Skipper Coates of The Real Miss Frizzle, and she talked all about how to transform our existing one-dimensional lessons that really just focus on the what that students need to know, how to transition those to be more three-dimensional, so really thinking about the what, but also the why and the how. If you missed that episode... I think it's worth your time to head back and listen to episode seven. And this is a concept, this idea of teaching in 3D, that is a pillar of the next generation science standards. And it gets fleshed out in the disciplinary core ideas, the science and engineering practices, and the cross-cutting concepts. But before we go any further, I know that not every state or district or school subscribes to NGSS and how they say we should be teaching. And I will even be the first to say that there's a lot about NGSS and just really the way that it was written that I don't love. But I am a huge fan of considering the three dimensions when I'm teaching, as well as incorporating phenomena as best I can. And so before you turn off the episode and take off your headphones because your school doesn't do NGSS, so you think this won't be helpful, wait! I first want to say that I have read every state's standards in the United States 
And there are a lot that are actually kind of like semi-plagiarized versions of the NGSS anyway. So you may have state-specific standards, but they might be more aligned to NGSS than you really think. And the second thing I want to say is this series is not NGSS specific. One of the things Skipper really emphasized in episode seven was that you can easily identify a three-dimensional classroom from a one-dimensional one in terms of how much the students are talking and how much the students are at the center of instruction versus how much the teacher is. And after this episode aired, a ton of you sent me DMs asking more follow-up questions about this. And so I knew we needed to do an entire series on shifting our pedagogy. So whether you teach in an NGSS school or not, we needed to talk about shifting pedagogy to being more student-centered, being more three-dimensional. And I really wanted to save this series for this time of year specifically, because now is the perfect time to really reflect on your teaching practice and consider what changes you might want to make before the next school year starts, because this is one that will make all of the difference if you start out your year this way than if it's something you try to implement mid-year. So like I mentioned previously, we will get into why I think you should consider shifting to this and how exactly to do so in the next few weeks. But we first need to set a clear definition for what I mean by student-centered pedagogy going forward. So you may have heard this referred to as student-centered learning, learner-centered teaching, student-centered pedagogy. All of these terms are kind of referring to the same group of teaching strategies, and they are not novel ideas. For the better part of the last decade, there has been a major emphasis in teacher education programs to focus on the use of instructional methods that are putting the focus on students rather than the teacher. So again, this isn't a revolutionary concept, and I'm not trying to pretend like I am the only person doing it or talking about it or anything like that. I'm sure there are so many of you listening that have a ton of experience teaching this way. But for clarity's sake, I want to cover what this is and what it isn't. So first, what it is. I like to think of this as the student being on stage and the teacher in the audience, so to speak. Rather than the teacher on stage with a classroom full of students, I like to think of student-centered pedagogy getting me off the stage and allowing me to be in the audience amongst my students. In student-centered pedagogy, the teacher really moves from a role of deliverer to the role of being more of a coach, or I like the term facilitator. I'm facilitating learning rather than delivering information that will they will be expected to learn. Students also move from a more passive learning role to a more active one. And I am, I've talked about this before, I'm not against passive learning methods at all. I actually think it's helpful to have a balance of passive, more passive learning strategies and instructional resources and active in a class period, especially if you have 90 minute periods, just because to expect a student to be actively learning for 90 straight minutes is a lot on their brains. But in general, we're just going to move the emphasis to be more active for students. And at the end of the day, what it really is, is that the students become ultimately responsible for their learning rather than the teacher. So this means that as the teacher, we have to be willing to let go of the reins and hand them off to students so that they can step into that responsibility. We have to hold our lesson plans more loosely so that our students can have more input and guide them a little bit more. 
And it also really means that we have to take time to train students and parents that setting students up to take responsibility for their own learning doesn't mean we are not teaching them as so many students and parents will accuse us of doing. We really have to train them to view teaching and learning in a different way. Even though this isn't a new concept, it's something we've been talking about for 20 plus years. It is still one of those things that is so ingrained in our students and their parents, what learning should look like and what teaching should look like. This is one reason I really wanted to have this episode and this series now. Because this is a shift in pedagogy and teaching practice and learning style that is just so much easier if you start it at the beginning of the year and you kind of set a standard. And again, you can start small and kind of scaffold this and build to it. But if you start at the beginning of the year, making it a priority that your class looks and feels and is student-centered, then you can actually train students and parents in this new way of learning. Because again, so many are used to saying things like, if it wasn't lectured on, or if you specifically didn't write it in the notes, then it shouldn't be on the test, or you didn't teach it to me if we didn't write it in the notes. And that's just not true. So we have to train our students and their parents to think of it a different way. And last but not least, in terms of what student-centered pedagogy is, student voices should be the most heard rather than the teacher's. This means that as a teacher, we need to be willing to listen a lot more than we tell. And do we still tell? Yes, of course. But before we tell, we should always ask questions so that we can listen before we offer all the information. And we'll talk more on this in episode 31, so stay tuned. Okay, so I find it helpful when I'm trying to understand what something is to also understand what it isn't. So let's talk about now what student-centered pedagogy isn't or really what it doesn't have to be. I feel like there are a few misconceptions that a lot of us have when we think of student-centered pedagogy. And these are the ones that were most coming up in my DMs as questions y'all were having in terms of how to do student-centered pedagogy, but also manage or balance these things. So we are gonna address the concept of students being in complete control, which then would lead to your classes feeling like they're lacking structure and making lesson planning really tricky. And then lastly, having to have all your units be self-paced. So these are three things that I think a lot of people associate with student-centered pedagogy that don't necessarily have to be the case. That isn't necessarily what student-centered pedagogy is. So let's talk about those. So first, Student-centered pedagogy is not all about students being in complete control. The teacher is still very much in control. I still design units and I write lesson plans just as much as I did before I started prioritizing student-centered teaching practices. I'm just very intentional within those plans to create space for students to be autonomous and in control. All I'm, while I'm still on the outside guiding the overall direction that we are heading as a class. So picture it this way. Think about if you took driver's ed, which I feel like is a foreign concept nowadays, but I took driver's ed, not at my school, but still I had to take a driver training course. When you got into the driver's ed car, the instructor didn't step out of it and just watch you from the sidewalk shouting instructions to you. Instead, the instructor moved from the driver's seat into the passenger seat and was still in the car next to you. 
when you were driving that driver's ed car, you felt like you had complete control of the wheel and the gears and the pedals and all that. Because in a sense, you did. But in reality, your instructor on their side of the car had their own set of brakes and a wheel potentially also to help guide the trip. That's what student-centered pedagogy is. We're not saying that this teacher needs to step out of the classroom or out of the driver's seat entirely. But we are saying you need to move to the side so that a student can step into that role. You are still going to be there guiding them side by side, but you're not going to be in the driver's seat. So students do not have to have complete control. Okay, and that kind of leads to the second misconception. I think a lot of people think that student-centered pedagogy means in order to do it well, there can't be structure. And I know many of us feel like letting students be in more control and taking our hands off the wheel and moving out of the driver's seat makes it really tricky then to figure out, well, how do I lesson plan then? Like, how do I know, how do I structure my units and know what pace we're taking and all of that if I'm not in the driver's seat? If I'm not dictating everything, how do we keep a steady pace and move through the material at a reasonable rate? And so let me tell you, if you have been around here at all, you know I love structure. I am one of those people that writes all my lesson plans for the entire year before the school year even starts because I just love lesson planning so much and I love having a plan. But here's the difference. I write all of these in pencil. I like having a set structure to work from and to serve as my default. Like I like to go into every day with a plan. To me, structure and having that actually allows me the space and capacity to be more flexible. So I'm still doing those things, but I'm holding it loosely enough so that if our conversation takes us one direction, or if students get really into designing a lab and it takes longer than I think, it's not the end of the world. I can just kind of move things around. So let me give you two practical examples of this in action. And I'm going to specifically give these examples with regards to phenomenon-based teaching. So teaching with phenomenon is another like critical component of NGSS. And it's another thing I've gotten a lot of DMs about. And so I want to talk about that in these examples. So you can still incorporate phenomena and still do student-centered pedagogy and make them foundational to your unit plans without having to just wing it day by day and be writing lesson plans the night before because you don't know what you did today in order to write the next days or whatever it may be. I know this is what we want to avoid. We don't. We want to avoid feeling like student-centered or phenomenon-based teaching requires us to follow students' lead so much to the point that we can only plan one day at a time. Because planning one day at a time is not an efficient use of your time, and it is not what Secondary Science Simplified is all about. That is for sure. So I'm going to give you two examples of how you can do this and still have structure. Okay, so first, I think about my biology curriculum and how I teach biology. In my fifth unit on heredity, I love to use an anchoring phenomena all about how we as a society love to place an emphasis on self-improvement and becoming the best versions of ourselves. And so what does that look like if we translate self-improvement from a genetic standpoint, if it relates to the manipulation of our genomes? And so kind of bringing up this topic serves as an anchoring phenomenon for our entire heredity unit. 
So what that looks like is I bring it up and we start the unit with discussions about it and students are asking questions and we're kind of debating like the ethics behind it and the logistics of it. But at this point in our learning, we haven't really learned how inheritance works and how what a genome really is in much detail. And so then we kind of transfer the unit into, okay, well, let's figure out how is this even possible that we can manipulate our genomes. Well, in order to understand that, we first need to understand the basics of Mendelian inheritance patterns so that then we can expand upon that and talk about complex inheritance patterns. And then we can expand upon that and talk about how we can actually track inheritance patterns with pedigrees through family lines. And then that allows us to then transition into talking about how we can then manipulate genomes. And you can use all throughout this, we can use a variety of instructional resources. You could watch, you know, a Hollywood film like Gattaca. You can watch, you know, a more of like a documentary series like The Gene on Amazon Prime and really see what the modern developments are that are happening. I do a research and report activity where students research biotechnical applications and implications and It's so fascinating to see what they come up with and what they bring. And so this idea of self-improvement, the self-improvement movement, if you will, moving into the manipulation of our genomes, that's the anchoring topic that we refer back to in everything we do throughout the entire unit. But the unit is, again, still incredibly structured. We're still moving through these pillars that we have to cover in the content in order for them to understand. But we're always bringing it back to this big picture phenomenon that's anchoring the entire unit. Okay, so another example. This one involves investigative phenomenon. So I love in my ecology unit to use the essential idea that earth is a closed system, meaning that matter and energy must cycle through living and non-living things. They have to cycle since earth is closed. And so in order to kind of lead that entire unit around this essential idea, we do an investigation called ecosystem in a bottle in my class. And this is how we start the unit. I introduce this concept of ecosystem in a bottle and how they don't really believe me in a sense. Like they under, they hear me when I say earth is a closed system, but it doesn't really connect what that actually means until we do ecosystem in a bottle. And I'll link that in the show notes, which you can always find at it's not rocket science classroom.com slash episode 29. I'll link what I have written up for this, but essentially it's a project where students will have two two liter bottles and they will have to figure out how to connect them in a closed system One will be an aquatic ecosystem and one will be a terrestrial one. And they will have to figure out how to keep them connected so that essential nutrients can cycle and everything can stay alive in their bottles for the course of 25 or 30 days or whatever you decide upon. And so I introduce my unit with this concept of this investigation we're going to be doing. And they ask questions. And then we learn a little bit more about biogeochemical cycles. And then after we've learned about the biogeochemical cycles, we start talking about designs and brainstorming all the different factors they need to consider. And then we kind of move through and we start talking about, you know, population growth patterns and relationships like competition and how those things affect ecosystems. And each of these things we're learning throughout our unit are guiding our investigative phenomenon of this ecosystem in a bottle concept. And so throughout the unit, we're assembling our ecosystems in a bottle, and then we're going to be taking data. We're going to be observing them throughout the entirety of the unit. And then only at the end of the unit, 
once we've kind of wrapped up our 30 days of data collection and students have reflected on their experience, we then really understanding the essential idea that this whole unit is based upon. This science behind the phenomenon of Earth being a closed system, meaning that for life to exist, matter and energy must cycle. And it's all being done through this long-term investigation. But again, it's not like I'm walking into this 45-day unit. This is one of my longest units. And being like, okay, let's just see what happens with this investigation. No, there's so much structure to how it's paced and how it's integrated within the unit, but students are entirely designing their ecosystems in a bottle. They're entirely designing this experiment and how they're going to collect data and all of these things. So there's so much student-centered learning that's happening, and it's all based around this one phenomenon. So I just wanted to give you those two examples. I know that was super wordy, and I just talked a lot. But I just wanted to show you how I am incorporating phenomenon and I'm making learning student-centered while still having a mixed structure and how I plan out my lessons and my units. So student-centered pedagogy does not mean no structure. And lastly, I want to say too, student-centered pedagogy doesn't mean that it has to be completely self-paced units. We aren't just saying, okay, here's a textbook or here's a workbook and you learn, like you do this at your own pace. I'm here to help you as you need. We are just trying to make them see the meaning and the connection behind what they're learning and what it has to do with them so that they will care about learning it. You know, our students already have a device that tells them all of the what that they could ever want to know. So our jobs as educators have shifted in the 21st century to not being the tellers of the what, but now being the creators of opportunities for students to discover why something matters or how it works and the meaning of that for them. And so I like to create self-paced opportunities for my students because I do think that having you know, learning assessments where they can work at their own pace is really beneficial for them. So I like to have projects and things that are entirely self-paced. They can work as they want. But even still, a good project manager offers timelines and structure to support a team along the way. They aren't just setting their team free and then saying, I expect to see the results at X time. You know, so I am a pro, I see myself as the project manager. Like I'm going to give you some guidelines, but then I will set you free to work in these capacities and I'm going to guide you through it. I think entirely self-paced units are possible and they can be more realistic if you have smaller class sizes. But I know most of you listening are managing 30 or so students and, and maybe you're managing some students at home and some in your classroom and it's just a lot to coordinate that I think isn't necessarily realistic. And so I just want to encourage you that you can still have structure, you can still have lesson plans, and you can still create opportunities for students to work at their own pace within context. And it can still be student-centered teaching practice without it being an entirely self-paced unit. So yes, student-centered pedagogy It can look like the student's in control. It can look like it being self-paced. It can look like there isn't maybe a ton of structure to your lesson plans, but it doesn't have to look like those things to qualify as being student-centered. And so I hope you are encouraged by hearing that. And I really hope that this episode gives you a clear idea 
of what student-centered pedagogy is versus what it isn't or doesn't have to be. But before I let you go, I want to leave you with just a few reflection questions so you can consider your own teaching practice and kind of rate yourself on where you are in shifting your pedagogy to be more student-centered rather than teacher-centered. So I want you to consider what percentage of your class period are you the teacher at the front of the room versus being free in your plans to kind of move around the room and engage with students on a one-on-one basis? Another question, how much of your class time is spent with you talking versus your students talking? What is the main way that your students learn the what of your content area? How are they getting the what? Another thought is what instructional resources do you mostly point your students towards when they are looking for guidance as to what to study before a test? Are you always pointing them to their notes or can you point them to a lab or this learning experience or that or this research project? Those are things that are also what you're referencing for their studying. And lastly, if someone from a different country or a different planet came to shadow you, how would they describe your classroom and your teaching style? What would they say it looked like if they had no concept for what teaching should or shouldn't look like? What would they say your classroom sounded like? I ask you these questions not to overwhelm you or bum you out, but to give you some sort of metric to consider as you evaluate your teaching practice and how you may or may not want to consider changing it this school year. And again, stay tuned for next week's episode where we will talk more about why making this shift to more student-centered pedagogy is best for both you and your students. Thank you for listening to today's episode. It really means so much, especially in the summer that you are still engaging with me and you're listening to the podcast. So thank you for tuning in even during your much-deserved time off from school. And be sure to follow or subscribe to Secondary Science Simplified wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts so you don't miss the next episode in our student-centered pedagogy series. All right, teacher friends, that wraps up today's episode. If you're looking for an easy way to start simplifying your life as a secondary science teacher, head to itsnotrocketscienceclassroom.com slash challenge to grab your classroom reset challenge. And guess what? It's totally free. Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll see you here next week. Until then, I'll be rooting for you, teacher friend.